Welcome to the Verity Podcast for Thursday, November 2nd, 2023. The only podcast that separates the fact from the narrative spin. I'm Adam Clark. And I'm Eric Steiner with a look at today's top stories. Gaza's Rafah border with Egypt opens for limited evacuations. A new report suggests Volodymyr Zelensky is feeling betrayed by Western allies. Hundreds of thousands of Afghan migrants are preparing to leave Pakistan. Jack Lew is confirmed as the U.S. ambassador to Israel. Myanmar seeks to repatriate Rohingya refugees from Bangladesh. The Supreme Court hears two cases about public officials blocking citizens on social media. The U.S. Federal Reserve keeps interest rates steady despite stubborn inflation. The U.S. infant mortality rate rises for the first time in 20 years. Southern California wildfires force thousands to evacuate. And Saudi Arabia is on track to host the 2034 World Cup. In our top story, the latest from Gaza, the Rafah border with Egypt opens for limited evacuations. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Guardian, Reuters, CBS, and Associated Press. After being closed during three weeks of conflict, Gaza's border crossing with Egypt opened for partial evacuations for the first time on Wednesday. While the Rafah crossing has so far allowed an estimated 200 aid trucks to pass, it was the first time people were allowed to cross, allowing an estimated 90 injured Palestinians and hundreds of dual citizens to enter Egypt. According to reporting from Reuters, the deal between Israel, Egypt, and Hamas was mediated by Qatar with collaboration from the U.S. A source for the publication said it's unknown how long the border crossing would remain open. Prior to Wednesday's announcement, the U.S. State Department said over 400 American citizens were trapped in Gaza. It's not clear how many have so far been able to cross into Egypt. Meanwhile, for those that remain in the blockaded enclave, Israeli airstrikes have continued. On Tuesday and Wednesday, Israel bombed the Jabalia refugee camp near Gaza City, reportedly killing and wounding hundreds of people, though exact figures are currently unknown. According to the latest figures from the Hamas-run Gaza Health Ministry on Wednesday, nearly 8,800 Palestinians have now been killed, more than 3,600 of those children. Local health officials also said that 16 of Gaza's 35 hospitals are now not operational due to lack of fuel, including the region's only cancer clinic. There are reportedly more than 2,000 cancer patients in the Gaza Strip. Meanwhile, as Israel's ground offensive into Gaza continued, the Israeli Defense Forces said at least 15 soldiers were killed in fighting during the last day, reportedly taking the total number of soldiers killed to around 320 since Hamas's attack on October 7th, which killed an estimated 1,400. Thank you, Eric, for the facts on our first story and for the update on the situation in the Middle East. We're going to start our first round of narrative spins with a pro-Palestine narrative provided by Al Jazeera. After weeks of bombardment and blockade, the limited opening of the Rafah border crossing is a welcome move, allowing those who are seriously injured to seek immediate medical treatment, as well as allowing dual nationals to escape. However, too many in Gaza remain perilously close to death in this humanitarian catastrophe. The pro-Israel narrative comes from the Times of Israel. After Hamas's attack on Israel, the country was right to launch a war on the terror organization and seek to root it out. However, the war has also caused significant hardships on civilians, so this deal mediated by Qatar is welcomed by Israel. And the Metaculous Prediction community is going to share their first nerd narrative of the day. 
They think that there's a 50% chance that Israel will lift the blockade on electricity, food, gasoline, and medicine in Gaza by December 2023. In a recent report out of Ukraine, Zelensky feels betrayed by Western allies. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Time, Yahoo News, Fox News, and Ukranska Pravda. Amid signs of fading U.S. and European support for Ukraine during a 20-month war with Russia, a report in Time magazine this week suggests that Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky feels angered and betrayed by his Western allies. The publication's reporters followed Zelensky from Washington back to Kyiv after the Ukrainian leader visited America in September. Following the trip, in which Zelensky sought to convince U.S. lawmakers to give Ukraine additional military aid, he told Time that dwindling support and the world getting used to the Ukraine conflict was the, quote, scariest thing. However, after returning from the U.S., a member of Zelensky's team described him as angry. Another said that, most of all, Zelensky feels betrayed by his Western allies, who he feels left him without the means to win the war, only the means to survive it. Times reporting also characterized a bleak image of Ukraine's war effort after 20 months of conflict. It reported that despite a Ukrainian counteroffensive launched in June, roughly a fifth of Ukraine's territory remains under Russian control. It added that the counteroffensive, quote, has proceeded at an excruciating pace and with enormous losses, making it ever more difficult for Zelensky to convince partners that victory is around the corner. The article also highlighted a number of corruption scandals that strain Zelensky's relationship with Western allies. According to the report, prior to Zelensky's arrival in the U.S., the White House, quote, prepared a list of anti-corruption reforms for the Ukrainians to undertake. An aide of the Ukrainian leader told the publication that, quote, these were not suggestions, but rather conditions. Despite Zelensky's attempts to root out corruption, one Ukrainian official admitted, quote, people are stealing like there's no tomorrow. Time also detailed Ukraine's personal shortages after nearly two years of war, describing how military recruiting has dried up and how those killed were now replaced with relatively older conscripts that were less fighting fit. Nonetheless, according to the publication, Zelensky remains adamant Ukraine can win. One of these aides said he'd eludes himself, we're out of options, we're not winning, but try telling him that. On Wednesday, after Russia launched renewed offensive operations last month, Ukraine's interior ministry said Russia's attacks on Ukraine on the night of October 31st were the most of any day this year. It reported 118 attacks across 10 regions. Adam, thanks for laying out those facts. Our first spin is a pro-establishment narrative. It's coming from time. After 20 months of war between Ukraine and Russia, Western attention on the conflict is understandably fading, particularly following the eruption of violence between Hamas and Israel in the Middle East. Polls show that fewer and fewer Americans want to maintain funding for a Ukraine conflict whose outcome remains far from clear. There's also a pro-Ukraine narrative provided by Yahoo News. This article by Time magazine reflects a subjective opinion on Ukraine after a few days spent in the country. Ukrainians have to live and breathe in the country every moment of every day. Only Ukrainians know what it is to fight Russian aggression every day. This is one of those pieces with unnamed sources being used as political agendas for America to take Ukraine's military funding away. 
The Nerd Narrative is coming up from Metaculous Prediction Community. It says there's a 1% chance that there will be a bilateral ceasefire or peace agreement in the Russo-Ukraine conflict before 2024. Boy, that's a that's a depressing story. It really is very grim, and you know the shelf life of it just seems to be fading. I think the the problem is he's got a a more attractive war going on in the Middle East, right? By societal standards, right? What's crazy is in the Ukraine war, there's a more obvious bad guy, good guy, right? They're unevenly matched. You, you know what I mean? As opposed to in the Middle East, yeah, it's very blurry. Very blurry in the Middle East of what's going yeah, on. Yeah, there's blood in the water over there. You can't separate anything. But there seems to be more support for one side or the other yeah. in the Middle East as opposed to what's actually going on in uh, in Ukraine, which is, who knows, you know, uh, Putin could have set up the recent spark in the Middle East to make it more attractive and take attention off of Ukraine. Yeah, when who we knows? finish this podcast, I am going to reach out to him to kind of kind of get a feel, take his temperature just to see what's going on in that mind. Yeah, see what, see, what, see what Putin's up to. See if you can get, you know, put those yeah. feelers out there, you know, work, work that right. magic the way that you do. Eric. Yeah. It, is there anything you want me to say on your behalf? I mean, do you want him to reach out to you when I'm finished? Um, yeah, he tell him he's he he hasn't returned my text for like three days. I'm I'm a little upset. Oh, I don't like to be ghosted. OK, yeah, we'll we'll, we'll figure that out. Hundreds of thousands of Afghans are leaving Pakistan following an immigration deadline. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, NPR Online News, BBC News, Al Jazeera, and Sky News. Hundreds of thousands of Afghans are believed to be leaving Pakistan as part of an order by Islamabad for undocumented migrants to either exit the country or be deported as of November 1st. While Islamabad's order is aimed at all undocumented migrants, UN agencies estimate that there are over 2 million Afghans currently illegally residing in Pakistan without paperwork, at least 600,000 of whom entered the state after the Taliban's 2021 return to power in Afghanistan. Pakistan's own data estimates 1.7 million individuals who must leave the country, with the state also claiming that nearly 200,000 Afghans returned to their country on Monday. According to a UN report, 8 in 10 of those who left felt in fear of being arrested if they had stayed. While Afghanistan's embassy in Islamabad has described the policy as, quote, harassment, Pakistan claimed that the decision has been made to protect the, quote, welfare and security of the state. The policy had been announced by Pakistan's interim interior minister, Safaraz Bukhti, on October 3rd, stating that there had been 24 suicide bombings since January, with 14 carried out by, quote, Afghan nationals. However, Bukhti also claimed that the impression only Afghans were being evicted was wrong. A spokesperson for the UN's United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, or UNHCR in Pakistan, Kaiser Khan Afridi, asked for the Pakistani government, which shares a 1,600-mile border with Afghanistan, to create a, quote, comprehensive system to help those at immediate risk of persecution if they were to return to Afghanistan, arguing there were many whose freedom or life might be at risk. Thank you, Eric. We're going to start our first round of narrative spins with a pro-establishment narrative provided by the Express Tribune. The current policy of forced repatriation of Afghan refugees prioritizes misconceptions concerning security over human rights. Many forced back to live under the Taliban-led government will be exposed to inhumane conditions and face the immediate threat of persecution. The Afghan population in Pakistan cannot be blamed for deep-rooted and multidimensional factors, including a current economic crisis that has undermined security within the state. Pakistan must halt this expulsion order. 
the establishment critical narrative comes from the nation. So far, the repatriation of Afghans, amongst other undocumented immigrants, has taken place in a safe and respectful manner. The voluntary process has been smooth due to Pakistan's establishment of facilities to provide water, tents, and food services, broadly leading to the satisfaction of those who have begun their journey home. While Pakistan will continue to provide relief and humanitarian assistance to refugees until they've been repatriated, Islamabad has a duty to prioritize its own citizen safety and economy over anything else. And the nerds think that there's an 82% chance that Pakistan will recognize the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan before 2030. And that's according to the Metaculous Prediction Community. The United States Senate confirms Lou as the ambassador to Israel. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CBS, Forbes, BBC News, Washington Post, and The Hill. The U.S. Senate on Tuesday voted 53-43 to to confirm former Treasury Secretary Jack Lew as the new ambassador to Israel. Lew's confirmation garnered the support of all Democrats and two Republicans, Senators Rand Paul of Kentucky and Lindsey Graham of South Carolina. The post had been open for months, but there was more urgency to fill it now that the U.S. is supporting Israel in its war against the Hamas militant group. Lew, nominated by President Joe Biden in September, led the Office of Management and Budget during the Clinton and Obama administrations, and he was the White House Chief of Staff during Obama's term before taking over Treasury in 2013. Republican opposition to Lou's nomination mostly centered around his support for the 2015 Iran nuclear agreement, a deal that then-President Donald Trump withdrew the U.S. from in 2018. Lou's appointment comes not just while war is unfolding in the Middle East, but also at a time when the U.S. House is set to vote on a bill to provide $14 billion in aid to Israel. The Senate mostly opposes the bill because it also makes cuts to the IRS. Thanks, Adam, for the facts. The first spin is a Republican narrative coming from Breitbart. Lou isn't the right fit for this post, and his confirmation demonstrates Democrats aren't taking Israel's security seriously. He showed his sympathy to Iran by playing a key role in the weak nuclear deal that freed up money for Tehran, which it used to fund Hamas, and was opposed by Israel. It's a slap in the face to send him to be the ambassador to one of America's greatest allies. And that's going to be opposed by a Democratic narrative provided by NBC. Republicans' accusations against Lou are meritless. Lou recognizes how much of a threat Iran is to stability and the Middle East, but he also knows the Iran nuclear deal made the world safer until Trump pulled out of it. Even Israeli officials have voiced their approval of Lou, who will fight to maintain Israel's security. Lou is what happens if Stephen Colbert and Bill Gates had a baby. And George Takai was the moil. <laughs> snip, snip. Oh, my. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. <laughs> Turning our attention to Myanmar as they are seeking to repatriate Rohingya refugees from Bangladesh. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, EFE Noticias, Dhaka Tribune, Yahoo News, Myanmar Now, and UN News. Officials from Myanmar traveled to Bangladesh on Tuesday to meet with Rohingya refugee families and discuss their repatriation, building upon a China-brokered pilot plan agreed in April between the two countries to return roughly 3,000 refugees by December. 
Bangladesh's Refugee Relief and Repatriation Commissioner Mizanur Rahman said that this trip comes as part of a verification process focused on the extended family members of those selected earlier for repatriation, including newborn children and wives of newlyweds. The 32-man Myanmar delegation is the third to visit Bangladesh this year, following previous rounds in March and May. Meanwhile, the Bangladesh government and a delegation of Rohingya visited Rakhine in May to inspect the situation there. According to a Bangladeshi government official who spoke to AFP on condition of anonymity, the Rohingya are not prepared to return to Myanmar until conditions such as resettlement in their own land and the assurance of citizenship rights are met. Roughly one million stateless Rohingya refugees, most of whom fled Myanmar amid a military crackdown that is currently subject to a UN genocide probe, live in overcrowded and under-resourced camps in Bangladesh. In June this year, the UN Special Rapporteur on the Situation of Human Rights in Myanmar, Tom Andrews, called for Bangladesh to, quote, immediately suspend the repatriation pilot program, arguing that the return of Rohingya refugees would expose them to gross human rights violations and future atrocity crimes. Eric, thank you for the facts on that story. We're going to start off our spins with a narrative A provided by the Daily Star. The quality of life within camps inhabited by Rohingya in Bangladesh is only deteriorating and barely keeping afloat thanks to humanitarian aid. The slow processing of data provided by Bangladesh to Myanmar authorities implies that there is little real desire to see Rohingya people return to their homeland. More pressure must be applied to Myanmar to oversee and ensure safe and peaceful repatriation. The National gives us Narrative B. Bangladesh's pilot plan ignores a host of human rights concerns surrounding the potential return of Rohingyas to Myanmar. Bangladesh is well aware of the potential consequences of blindly returning the persecuted Muslim community to the hands of a discriminatory military junta. Bangladesh must rethink its agreement with Myanmar and provide a real opportunity for its refugees to live a normal life. The U.S. Supreme Court is hearing two cases on officials blocking citizens on social media. Here are the facts as agreed upon by New York Times, ABC News, Global News, CBS, NPR Online News, and CNN. The U.S. Supreme Court on Tuesday heard oral arguments in two cases, O'Connor Radcliffe v. Garnier and Linke v. Freed, related to liability for public officials who block followers on their personal social media accounts. O'Connor Radcliffe v. Garnier centers around Michelle O'Connor and T.J. Zane, two elected members of a California school board who used their personal Facebook and Twitter accounts to reach the public. They blocked two parents who left critical comments and replies to posts, which the Ninth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals ruled violated the parents' free speech rights. Similarly, in the second case, the city manager of Port Huron, Michigan, James Freed, blocked resident Kevin Linke from a Facebook page after he made comments critical of the city's COVID-19 policies. A federal district court and the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit Court ruled Freed's social media choices were not state actions and didn't violate Linke's rights. This represents the first chance the Supreme Court has had to rule on this type of case since it dismissed challenges related to then-President Donald Trump's blocking of users, leaving critical comments on X, then Twitter, two years ago. Adam, thank you for laying out those facts. Our first spin is a pro-establishment narrative coming from NBC. Elected officials shouldn't have to treat all their social media interactions as official business. 
And in turn, if they're not using a social media platform to conduct government actions, it's their First Amendment right to block anyone they choose. This is a nonpartisan issue, as the Biden administration is taking the same position as Trump supporters. And that's going to be countered with an establishment critical narrative provided by The New York Times. Democratic rights must be protected as much online as in reality. Both realms, the First Amendment exists to protect citizens from government censorship and to prevent the government from suppressing dissent. Blocking citizens online is the same as silencing someone at a public meeting or a government proceeding. The Supreme Court should fine for the plaintiffs in both of these cases. Our friends at the Metaculous Prediction community are at it again. They're going to contribute a nerd narrative. They say there's a 3% chance that the ACLU will argue that hate speech should not be protected by the First Amendment before 2024. Hey, Eric, remember that time two years ago when you were tweeting to President Trump or you're responding to that tweet and he blocked you? Remember that? Yeah. I'm, you know. What, what, what was it you said again? I don't remember. I, you know. He did. He wait. I'll, let me try and help you. He, yeah. Try. Yeah. Yeah. Because I can't. He posted something like uh, everybody's out to get me. It's a witch hunt except for the state of Oklahoma. Oklahoma loves me. Oh, yeah. Yes. Absolutely. I remember that tweet. What did I say to him? You ask? Yeah. What did you say? What was your response? Well, let me think for about 10 minutes and I'll come up with something very witty. No. <laughs> The U.S. Fed holds interest rates steady for the second time. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, CNN, Associated Press, and CNBC. The U.S. Federal Reserve announced Wednesday that it will not increase interest rates after concluding a two-day meeting that saw officials unanimously decide to leave the benchmark rate unchanged in the 5.25% to 5.5% range, where it has stood since July. This marks the second consecutive time the rate has been held steady after a run of 11 rate hikes since March 2022 to counter runaway inflation, which has seen the benchmark rate reach a 22-year high. This comes as inflation, down from its peak of 9.1% in 2022, remains above the target rate of 2%, sitting at over 3%. Fed Chair Jerome Powell said that it will observe how the economy responds to the previous rate hikes before deciding on another increase. Powell noted the U.S. economy has remained resilient despite the Fed's efforts to cool it with rate hikes. Non-farm payrolls were above Wall Street expectations in September, growing by 336,000, while third-quarter GDP grew at a 4.9% annualized rate, a performance Powell said could push the Fed to keep tightening its policy at December's meeting. The previous rate hikes have contributed to surging bond yields. As yields increase, bond prices decrease meaning that investors are less likely to invest in treasuries. This presents problems for the Treasury, which is auctioning off $776 billion of debt in the fourth quarter. The stock market rallied after the Fed's decision, with the Dow Jones soaring 0.8% while the S&P 500 gained 1.1%, and the Nasdaq Composite rose 1.6%. Tech stocks led the way as the semiconductor company AMD saw its share price up by 9.3%, while Nvidia's rose 3.5%. Thanks, Eric. The first spin on this story is an establishment critical narrative provided by Bloomberg. Powell and the Fed are playing with fire as the central bank pauses interest rate hikes yet again, despite persistent inflation. While inflation isn't at the record high of 9% from last year, it's still far above the 2% target, and the Fed's current rate isn't moving the needle. While it might be painful for some, the U.S. economy must cool down, and that still hasn't happened yet. The pro-establishment narrative comes from Fortune. 
The Fed is taking a prudent approach, pausing rate hikes after 11 consecutive increases to observe how the economy responds to the previous moves. While inflation isn't quite where it needs to be, it has still cooled dramatically over the last year. There's no easy solution to balancing inflation and economic growth, and the Fed is right to keep its options open. And the Metaculous Prediction community think that there's a 25% chance that the federal funds rate will be raised before December 14th of 2023. The U.S. infant mortality rate has risen for the first time in 20 years. Here are the facts as agreed upon by ABC News, The Missoulian, CNN, NBC, and CBS. Infant mortality rates in the U.S. rose last year for the first time in 20 years, according to a report released on Wednesday by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention's National Center for Vital Statistics. The U.S. recorded 5.6 infant deaths per 1,000 live births in 2022, a 3% increase from 2021. White and Native American infants, infant boys and babies born at 37 weeks or earlier, had significant death rate increases. Preeclampsia and bacterial meningitis, the two leading causes of infant deaths from maternal complications, also had large increases rising 8% and 14%. The report also detailed how death rates for infants with black mothers remained the highest of all the groups, at 10.86 per 1,000 births, twice the U.S. average. Mortality rates for infants of Native Americans or Alaska Native women rose significantly from 7.4 infant deaths per 1,000 to greater than 9 deaths in 2022. The rise in mortality rates was the first year-to-year increase from 2001 to 2002 when the rate similarly rose by 3%. Infant mortality is the measure of how many babies die before reaching their first birthday. The CDC will likely release a final report next year following a more comprehensive review of the data. Researchers have not yet been able to determine whether the 2022 rise in infant mortality rates was the start of a lasting trend or a one-year statistical anomaly. Experts have pointed to economic and pandemic-related stress, lack of maternal care, and limiting access to abortions and reproductive health care as reasons for the increase in infant mortality rates. Adam, thank you for the facts of that story. The first spin is a left narrative. It's coming from NBC. Planned intentional pregnancies tend to have healthier infant outcomes. With the rollback of Roe v. Wade and the conservative crackdown on reproductive health care and abortion rights, more women are being forced to carry babies they did not plan and cannot support. By removing the ability for women to decide if and when to have children, more babies are being born in unhealthy circumstances. And left narratives are typically followed up with right narratives, and we've got one here provided by National Review. There are many reasons why infant mortality figures may be higher in the U.S., ranging from illegal immigration to disruption of COVID measures on healthcare systems. A detailed examination of the statistics and causes must be carried out before ascribing any potential linkage to abortion access. The Metaculous Prediction community has a nerd narrative for this story. They say there's a 5% chance that elective abortion will be banned nationally in the United States before 2030. A Southern California wildfire forces thousands to evacuate. Here are the facts as agreed upon by NBC, The Hill, Associated Press, and ABC News. 
At least 4,000 residents have been forced to evacuate their homes near Aguanga in Southern California due to a raging wildfire. The National Weather Service has issued a red flag warning of extreme fire danger in parts of Los Angeles and Riverside counties. Though the wildfire, fueled by gusty Santa Ana winds, has been 10% contained, it has destroyed three structures, threatened nearly 2,400 homes and buildings, and injured a firefighter. Reported Monday afternoon, the Highland Fire has prompted authorities to issue mass evacuation orders as it has spread over four square miles or 10 square kilometers of vegetation-filled hills. While air tankers, helicopters, and bulldozers have been pressed into service to fight the blaze, power utility Southern California Edison could cut electricity to nearly 55,000 customers in four counties. The Santa Ana winds, which carry hot, dry, and dusty air from inland deserts to the Pacific coast during the fall, have been notorious for contributing to some of California's largest and most destructive wildfires in the past. Eric, thank you for the facts and for the update on the situation there. We've got a Narrative A spin for this story provided by NPR Online News. Climate change is the driving force behind wildfires in California and has raised the risk of quick-spreading fires by 25%. The climate emergency is real and must factor into the calculations of Californians as they work and live in increasingly dangerous wildland-urban interface areas growing more precarious in a warming world. As we check out the narrative from Forbes, they say a complex, long-standing natural phenomena are causing the fires in Southern California. Dry winds and low humidity have dried out grass and brush in rural areas, and the Santa Ana winds provide ample conditions for flames to spread. California has historically had very problematic fire conditions. It's far and above the environmental alarmism of squarely blaming climate change. And the nerds think that there's a 50% chance that wildfires will destroy a total exceeding 10 mega hectares of global tree cover by the end of 2030. And that's according to the Metaculous Prediction Community. I tell you, them Santa Ana winds ain't nothing to cough at. They really are that bad, huh? They are serious. Oh, wow. Oh, dude, they suck. And they, and they just dry out everything, and they're just... Don't they kind of blow the smog out of L.A., though? They do clear the air a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but what's going on here, there's a fire coming from the south. It's blowing all that smoke up from the south into L.A., into the L.A. basin. Oh. So it's just going to, it's all settling right there. Right. So it just creates a, a worse mess. I get it. Okay. And we're going to wrap up today's podcast with news out of Saudi Arabia, where they have cleared a path to host the 2034 World Cup. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Associated Press, New York Times, Reuters, Forbes, and Daily Mail. Saudi Arabia is on the cusp of earning the right to host the 2034 World Cup after Australia's decision not to enter the race before FIFA's Tuesday deadline left the kingdom as the lone declared bidder. FIFA, who limited bids only to countries from Asia and Oceania, said it will make its final announcement of the 2034 host in the fourth quarter of 2024. Football Australia decided to focus on bids for the 2026 Women's Asian Cup and the 2029 World Cup, rather than pursue a bid for the 2034 World Cup. It's widely thought that Saudi Arabia's support for the Asian Football Confederation would have made it unlikely for Australia to win enough FIFA votes. Previously, Saudi Arabia was scheduled to bid for the 2030 World Cup in partnership with Greece and Egypt, but decided to bid solo for 2034 instead. Adam, thanks for laying out those facts. The first spin coming from CBS. It's Narrative A. 
Saudi Arabia's record on human rights is appalling, and the country shouldn't be allowed to sports wash this reputation by being allowed to host major sporting events. FIFA must get human rights commitments from the kingdom before it officially grants it the honor of hosting the World Cup. And we're going to wrap today up with a narrative B provided by Al Jazeera. This is the next step in Saudi Arabia's transformation into a welcoming home for all sports. The kingdom's dream is to be a leading nation in world sport, and those who accuse it of sports washing are missing the point. The kingdom is seeking to grow its GDP, and sports are a key driver in that pursuit. Thanks for listening to the Verity Podcast for Thursday, November 2nd, 2023. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers, and we figure out which ones are about the same stories. Then for each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all the articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. Find out more at Verity.news and download the Verity app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Adam Clark, I'm Eric Steiner, inviting you to join us next time on the Verity Podcast. Verity Podcast.